Welcome to Change Hackers, providing daily insight and inspiration for people changing their world. I'm your host, Tony Cook, and I invite you to join me today in conversation with someone on the front line of driving change and transformation. My guest today is Cressy Wesley. Cressy is a Canadian-born serial environmental entrepreneur who builds businesses that make money whilst having a positive impact on the environment. Cressy founded her first business in Hong Kong in 2002. By 2004, she'd launched this business in the UK and has since helped to build two other green business projects. In 2007, Cressy launched Elvis and Cressy, which turns industrial waste into innovative lifestyle products whilst returning 50% of profits to charities and organisations related to that waste. They began life and immediately hit the headlines, making handbags from decommissioned fire hose. On top of this, Cressy has found time to serve as a social enterprise ambassador for the UK government and as a World Economic Forum young global leader. I spoke to Cressy from her office in Rochester, England. So Cressy, welcome to Change Hackers. Thank you. It's really great to have you here. I, I first came across you um, back in, I think it was 2012. Um, and at the time you were just getting established, I guess, uh, in what you're doing at Elvis and Cressy, which was, I mean, it blew my mind when I first came across it. How do you make attractive luxury goods out of something like fire hose? You know, no, it's just absolutely mind boggling and, and just so inspirational that, um, that you were turning a waste product into something that was... Um, aspirational and, and desirable. Mm-hmm. So what I'd love to do is just, just get into, you know, where the idea came from in the first place. You know, why did this stuff matter to you in the first place? Um, okay. You know, what was that first kernel that got you going? I think it's, it, it's always the material. We always start with the material. And for me, I moved to the UK in yeah. 2004, and I knew that I wanted to do some project that was related to the environment and environmental uh, change positive making a positive environmental impact and I discovered that in the UK in that year 2004 100 million tons of waste went to landfill and because I couldn't really imagine what that meant because it seemed like an enormous amount of material in this tiny island I went to a bunch of landfill sites and started to take a look at the issue firsthand and to a certain extent I saw what I expected I saw bin bags and tennis rackets and nappies but then I also saw truck after truck arrive with just one type of waste in it and when you start to see that you realize that actually that's just a design flaw that's an inefficiency that's an opportunity waiting to be exploited and in 2005 I had a chance meeting with the London Fire Brigade and discovered that their damaged decommissioned hoses were going to landfill and I knew that something had to be done about that because it's a beautiful material with an amazing history behind it and incredible durability. And just because you've got this catastrophic tear at meter 11 of a 22 meter hose doesn't mean that the entire hose is worthless. It just needs to be to find its second home and its second life. And I brought that home to Elvis and said, okay, this, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. Um, and, and the adventure began at that point. There's a whole heap of questions which sort of spring out of that for me. But I guess the first one is, why, why did you feel that this was your problem to solve? I think, I think there's a, a phrase that I always will get from my grandmother. She said it to me uh, and, and probably didn't think about it when she did. But she said something like, if you're capable, you're responsible. Mm-hmm. 
And when I saw the fire hose, I immediately felt like we would be able to solve that problem. And one of the reasons for that is that it's a niche waste. You know, there there is only maybe 10 tons of fire hose waste produced in the UK each year, three tons in the greater London area. And that led me to believe that it was it was a solvable problem. It was a surmountable amount. And we just began from there. I think I think it was just this there was a naivety too, for sure. And then you said about turning it into something desirable. Yes. If you can just take us back a step or two in terms of what your your background had been up to that point, you know, is there a relevance there? Was there something that you were you were able to leverage in terms of, you know, a knowledge of the fashion industry or leather leather goods or, you know, the kind of the kind of thing, you know, the category that you've gone into. Yeah. Um, what was your background? Our background had very little to do with why with why we're making fire hose into luxury goods. I have no luxury background. Elvis has no luxury background. We uh, you know, we, we, we both have big issues with the fashion industry in general. It's the second most polluting industry in the world. And part of the reason for that is, is the, the phrase fashion, you know, fashion impl- uh, implies temporariness, implies the ephemeral. And that's kind of what's killing us, the fact that there's constant <laughs> flow of materials. So, no, we didn't have a background in this. And actually, that was probably to our to our benefit because... Fire hose is not like leather. You can't treat it in the same way. You can't process it in the same way. And and in a lot of ways, we were just going against the entire way that anything is designed ever. A traditional designer, whether they be an architect or an engineer or, or, or in fashion, they come up with an idea, then they go out and acquire the materials to achieve that concept. Mm-hmm. We had the material first. So the material told us what to do with it. The material dictated the next step. The material was what we had to research and understand before we could decide what market we were going to take it into. Right. And, it, and it just so happens that the material has several similar properties to those used and deployed in the luxury space. And it also so happens that it takes so much energy and effort to clean and prepare the material that you really wouldn't consider using it for something that was um, everyday or inexpensive. And then if you think about the whole value set of the business, we, I wasn't, we weren't going to make anything that didn't have long-term value. We weren't going to make something that was a throwaway. We wanted to make something that you could embed lots of craftsmanship in. And whether that was a construction item or, or what, what, what it ended up being, which was a luxury accessory, it was really important for us to, honor the material so so we call this a backwards design process start with the material and work your way towards a solution find the most appropriate most valuable second life for that for that item i guess looking back now you must see some of the decisions you you took at that time as maybe being um i mean naive in the kind of kindest sense but you wouldn't have known what you wouldn't have known if, if you know what i mean um, yes. And, you know, by taking that material first approach, you're setting yourself uh, um, on a path to having to go on vertical learning curves on a whole heap of different things um, that mm. you weren't experienced in. Yes. I think that's what made it so exciting and so interesting is that and, and, and maybe what made it possible. If we had had a traditional design background, we would never have chosen a material like this. Right. We would have chosen something much, much easier. 
<laughs> we, 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 you know, I, I think, um, and much more suitable, we had to convince an entire generation of consumers that fire hose could be desirable and could be, could be wonderful. And after, you know, I, I guess after 13 years, we were getting there. It, it, it's, we never would have done any of the things that we had done if we weren't willing to make these, these quite big leaps. At the time, they didn't seem so big. It just seemed like if we were going to do something to save the hose, we were going to have to do something novel because if, if the hose had been salvageable before that, it would have, it would have been done. When you're trying to solve a problem that hasn't been solved yet, that forces you into new territory. So in, in a sense, then, that ignorance, that naivety was, was an asset. Absolutely. And let's, let's maybe call it curiosity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> curiosity, <laughs> then. I think uh, curiosity and mixed with, with uh, stubbornness and, and just, and just uh, maybe, I don't know, I, I think this stems from our worldview, but the world isn't acceptable as it is. It's not good enough. We are not good enough. I, we're not civilized enough. And at some point, you have to put your foot down roll up your sleeves and get involved which you make sound really easy now and with the benefit of hindsight you know it's it's panning out well for you but I mean it can't have been easy how deep have you had to dig I think that we it's it's great that we were doing this at sort of year 13 because you can have really rose-tinted glasses about it but we started this business in a bedroom of a shared house we had the fire hose in our bedroom when we started making belts because technically in in the first year, that was all that was feasible for us as we were learning to use the material. We were making those belts in our bedroom and cleaning the fire hose by hand in the bathtub. It, 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 it just evolved from there. And every step we took was a baby step. Every, every new piece of equipment that we purchased was financed by sales. So it didn't seem at the time like we were making these big impossible leaps because we were doing them one by one by one as demand for the products was growing because everything was financed by, you know, selling belts and then bags as we were able to make bags. And and were you them. all in on this from day one or were you bootstrapping sort of with the, on top of a day job? I, I, I was, I, I was all in from, from from the beginning, Elvis took him a, took him a while to uh, <laughs> to jump in with both feet, but not that long. I think from two thousand and two thousand and seven onwards, he was full time. So, how, how early on did you get a sense that th this is going to be a runner? I think that was really what happened in two thousand and seven. Was that we knew that it had real potential. We had some incredible feedback and some incredible sales and it was time to pursue it and see if we could take it to the next level and that the the, the first year of trading was really hard I think the first year of trading was um, definitely not enough to pay us anything at all but the second year um, yeah the second year made us think yep we can we can stick with this and afford afford to eat and pay rent and 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 things like that you were lucky earlier on, if lucky is the right word, in attracting some really good PR, some celebrity endorsement for your products. And, you know, looking back, how important was that? And, and to what extent was it luck? Or was that you just being, you know, dogged in, in your determination to get the product out in front of people? 
you you have to acknowledge luck. Anyone who doesn't acknowledge luck is uh, is probably got way <laughs> too insane a concept of themselves because it's incredibly lucky to be able to keep a business open as long as we have. There are so many things that could kill us that didn't. So, so luck is definitely there. But I think the second aspect and perhaps the most interesting one is that we designed a good business model. You know, we rescue these amazing raw materials. We transform them into, uh, you know, unbelievable handcrafted goods and 50% of the profits go to charity. And in the case of the Firehose collection, that goes to the firefighters charity and that giving back it is is novel, I suppose. Certainly in luxury, it's very novel to make that that size of a commitment. But just that act of giving is what attracted so much press to us. So there there was definitely a karma there. So we so we 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 yes, there was an element of luck. But by doing good and by being generous, we attracted quite a lot of attention. Even when in those early days our donations were were small we were still saving the fire service money because we were solving the fire hose problem for them and i think that people underestimate the value of that goodness when they talk about goodwill they don't actually then think about well what have we done to earn that goodwill but it's fairly easy in our case to point to exactly what we've done we've designed a model that no matter how much we scale no matter how big we grow the two amazing things that we do will always be at the core of that, the rescue of, of raw materials and, mm-hmm. and the donations. So, so I, I think that that had the biggest element to do with it. And then, yeah. and then yes, the, the third is that we, we worked really hard. And we took every opportunity that was available to us. So in those early days, uh, who, who was against you? Your newbies as a brand, in, in a luxury goods market, so you, you've got a brand to establish. There's perhaps some of the big players weren't interested to begin with. They weren't even, you weren't even on their radar, mm. but you were doing something novel. And and you know whether it was a case of the the quality of your, of your design or the you know the, the durability of the product, the way it's put together. You know the, the, there'd be lots of people I imagine out there to say, oh, you know, you don't know what you're doing here. That you you're kind of you're on a learning curve. Um, but this isn't a professional kind of um, you know, end product yet. Yes. Uh, 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 and probably a hundred different other objections that have to, to what you were trying to do. You know, can, can you give us an example of, you know, what, what you're up against uh, you know, in, in a competitive industry? Oh, well, I mean, in this industry, you're up against businesses that have hundreds of millions of pounds to spend on marketing and supermodels and runway shows. And uh, it, it's, it's a completely different ball game. And I guess we just have decided to never compete with that. We've decided to run in a completely different fashion. And what is turning out to be true is that what the consumer now wants is more akin to what we deliver than, than what traditional luxury delivers. You know, we, we, we know that when people want to invest in something to last a long time, they're investing not just in the product itself, but in the company that's, that's produced it. And they want to invest in a company that has the values that they have, which are about caring for their employees. You know, we, we were a living wage employer. We have an apprenticeship program. We don't use any plastic in our packaging. All our packaging is also made of reclaimed materials. We're a certified social enterprise and a B Corp. And all of those things are really important to 
consumers now and and we're always in our heart to deliver and this is very very innovative and pioneering in the world of luxury so so i would say that even still we're barely on their radar but we are the future of this industry so so the the change that's going to have to happen now is that the bigger players are going to have to adjust and become more like us if they want to survive do you think that's even possible to retrofit your kind of model on top of theirs yes because in in this particularly in luxury because you're making things so you have a choice of what raw materials to use of how to source your raw materials of how to pay your craftspeople, of how to deliver your your end goods, how to pack them. You have so many choices and your margins allow you to make good decisions. So I think it is something that, it of all industries, it's actually one of the ones that it should be easier for mm. if, if only we can get the shareholders to agree. Right, but you talk about customers wanting that. Your customers yeah. want that of you. Yes. But your your customers will still, to what extent they're representative of the wider consumer base for luxury goods, you know, is is, is debatable. Uh, so it's, there's a question there for for the large brands in terms of you know to what extent they want to lead the market, you know, do these kind of things before their consumers are asking for it. Well, I think there's a lot of movement. Uh, there is a lot of movement going on. Certainly, the the large houses have never talked about sustainability in the way they are now. 10 years ago, in, in 2007, WWF commissioned a report looking at the luxury industry and no player got more than a C plus in terms of their ethics or environment. Right. And you that wouldn't be true today because they've all stepped up their game. Um, are they at our level yet? No, but are they going in that direction? Yes, I think so. And and I think they're doing it because all of the market research is pointing to you know the millennial and the zenial audience uh, wanting and expecting a lot more from their luxury brands. So if the incumbents do start to become part of your bandwagon, if you like, mm. in terms of you know the ethics and the, the responsible approach you're taking and the material first um, approach you're taking, you know, how, what, how does that affect your ability to differentiate? You, know, you, you were so different in, in the beginning. I think that we will always, one of the, the really amazing things about this industry too is that, is that it really respects history. So if you look at the, the major brands, they're always, they always have a, a, a story of how they got started, which tends to be back to the materials. Like you know, brand mythology. Yes. And ours is incredibly powerful because we started with nothing but good motivations. Mm. But really, you have to also look at where I want to go. As a social enterprise, my only desire to grow is in order to tackle problems that are much bigger mm -hmm. than we are. Mm -hmm. we, have, uh, we have, over the last few years, developed a solution for the world's leather waste issue. And it's so much bigger than the fire hose issue that if I stay small, if we decide not to grow, then actually we're abandoning a problem to the market which I don't think is capable of fixing it. And what we launched last year, late last year, was a partnership with the Burberry Foundation to scale this solution that we've created. We knew when we came up with this solution, if we wanted to scale it, that we were going to need an awfully brave, an awfully large partner to start with. And it's really amazing that 
the Burberry Foundation has stepped up and that we are going to be scaling primarily with offcuts from the production of their leather goods. It gives us a really unique opportunity, not just to uh, continue to solve the, the leather problem, but to do it on a scale we would not be able to do on our own. And, and, and really, hopefully, because the industry has a lot of respect for that particular brand, do it in a way uh, that we never thought was possible and at a pace we never thought was possible. Just, just reflecting on that, going back to what you were just saying about the, the, the changes, you're, the shifts you're seeing happening within the, mm. the, the luxury goods market, uh, and the big brands within it. To what extent is this important to you that you're a a, a leader in in this the direction you 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 you're traveling in, um, uh, and that that results in a mainstreaming of your approach by by I, others or mm. versus you know that your market share of it. I I think the most important thing for both of us is is to be known as a problem solver. Right. You know, there you have. Uh, there's a there's a lot of talk about thought leadership. Elvis and I don't want to be known as thought leaders. We want to be known as do leaders. We want to be known as problem solvers who deliver. And for that very reason, you know, it, whether our market share increases matters less to us than whether our solution for scaling the leather waste uh, is actually successful. Right. So it's the, so it's the solution that we want to take a leadership position rather than Elvis and Cressy. And that means that's actually quite exciting because it means there's a lot of different ways that we can arrive at that goal. Right. Well, I was just going to ask, I mean, does that signal a shift in, in business model for you? You know, in, in terms you know, are, are you a consumer facing brand in terms of scaling that, that kind of a, a solution to a problem or are you a, a, um, an enabler? You know, in this in the supply chain, that's that's recovering waste material um, for use by other brands. I think we're going to be both, and yeah, I think there's there's no single way to do this, and we're going to continue to have a really strong brand voice because that allows us to communicate directly with the customer, yeah. and and it allows us to try really novel and innovative things that some of our partners might find a bit too novel and innovative mm -hmm. sometimes it allows us to stay nimble and and do really really rapid prototyping and quick r&d and fail fast and keep moving but i also think that we will massively be an enabler because really i, I don't like the idea of having an 800,000 ton a year problem arrive on my doorstep i think it's going to be much easier to solve if we do this through partnerships yeah, yeah. in the field and get there quicker, I guess, as well. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's all about taking the risk out of it at the front end. Yes. Isn't it? In terms of the, like you were saying, the your ability to prototype and take those risks. Um, yes. Is, is is much more flexible than than a, a big brands will be. Yes. So I'm left wondering, you know, have you always wanted to be an entrepreneur? You know, is this something that you know, if you wind the clock back twenty years, had you ever imagined yourself doing something like you're doing now? 20 years ago, yes, but maybe not necessarily before that. You know, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a vet, and I think like most little kids. And then I wanted to be a lawyer, and then I wanted to be a politician. And I think I was always looking for something where I'd have an ability to make an impact. And when I left university, the first job I got was working for a very small venture capital fund. 
And what I learned in the two years that I worked there was that if you're running a business and you can make enough money to keep the doors open, there are really no rules and you can make as much impact or as little impact as you want. And unfortunately, the the route through to capitalism that most business leaders have taken is to not have that much wonderful and positive impact. But that doesn't mean that Elvis and I have to behave that way. So I love the I love working as an entrepreneur and and running a business because there there is an amazing opportunity to not compromise. Whereas in politics you'd have to compromise and in and in the law you'd have to follow the law. Right. Whereas in business you can really create your own rules as you go along and you can change and you can adapt and and you don't have to compromise the the downside to that is is that every now and again you may well face a, an existential crisis yep <laughs> so so <laughs> maybe more often than not <laughs> particularly in the early days Any, um, just yeah. as you're trying to breathe life and get the flywheel turning in a new business it's, it's always tough what have you learned about yourself by actually you know moving on from being an aspiring entrepreneur to to actually being a practicing entrepreneur is there anything that surprised you about yourself i think what we, we what we've learned is that we work really well together uh elvis and i and that we're incredibly resilient that we have a an amazing ability to sort of bounce from a from one crisis and and just keep going which is something that i you know, the more entrepreneurs that I meet, the more I realize that that some of them have had quite a lot of things that they've just walked away from and moved on from. And, and th- that their story is more about pursuing a new idea and a new idea and a new idea until they found the idea that fit. And ours is, was more about we are starting with the hose and we're going to stick with it until we sort it out. It, it's quite, we took maybe a slightly different approach and that has required a lot of resilience. We've had quite a few moments where the business really could have closed because of um, any of those things that can kill any business at any time. And we somehow managed to get through those. And I, I love that you mentioned existential crisis because actually we're facing constant crises, particularly for anybody who is in the environmental space and has any kind of env- environmental awareness about climate change and biodiversity. And it's hard to plow on in light of those things Hmm. i think there's an interesting thing that a very interesting phenomenon that's happening with a lot of clients climate scientists is that they're suffering from pre-traumatic stress disorder which is that they know something really bad is about to happen and they're telling everybody they can about it and trying to do what they can to fix it and nobody's listening and nothing's changing and that's that's basically like having an existential crisis every day and that's really, really hard to ha- to be having when you're trying to run a business. Though, I mean, your your perspective on it is totally different to a a, a climate scientist, I guess. That you're actually you're, you're doing something proactive, and I mean, this is where a lot of people seem to me get get stuck in, in that you know trying to reconcile that um, concern for the wider environment, you know, for big macro level issues, with what's within your own control and influence. Mm. You know, and, and so many people, you know, climate scientists included, you know, have such a large um, circle of, of, of concern, you know, that it leads to, um, you know, what you describe as this pre-traumatic stress disorder. You know, and you can see that in people. 
Um, it, how do you contain it so it's manageable on a day-to-day -day basis so that you know and it's being channeled and focused into something that's proactive? You just have so many things that you have to keep doing that your schedule mm. prevents you from getting lost in that. So we, we, have, we have waste materials arriving. There's a, that's a very tangible, real thing. A pallet of waste material will mm. arrive and it has to be unpacked, it has to be sorted, it has to be dealt with. Uh, we have to prepare and clean the raw materials. We have to design products. We have to make products. We have to repair. Um, we, you know, we, we'll get someone who's had a belt for 10 or 10 years and, and maybe uh, would like a little bit of refurbishment happening to it. There's so many things that happen a day. We get 20, 30 emails from customers. So that busyness helps you a lot. So I think the existential crisis uh, aspect tends to happen in the weekends. So, so we're actually, we've been having this debate or, or this discussion a lot uh, recently is that there is uh, a lot of people talk about mindfulness and the need to meditate and, and think. And actually we find that almost counterproductive because it, we're much more effective when we're just doing and not thinking so much. And, and, and maybe for us, the act of doing is our mindfulness practice. For you, maybe the, your activity, it's aligned to your values and to your, you know, you're not feeling conflicted in yeah. any way. I think that's where you know, many people in the workplace resort to uh, things like mindfulness because uh, the sources of their stress and, and anxiety and so on are, are, are things that are making them feel com uncomfortable about themselves. Yeah. Whereas for you, it's, it's, um, it's cathartic. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Looking forward from now, what, what do you see at a personal level as being the, the big challenges going forward? I think that the, we, the, re, the way we've designed the business model means that I have less concern with being less hands-on because at the core of Elvis and Cressy is rescue, transform, donate. That's the brand identity. That is, that is our brand value. That's our USP. I don't think any new employees would ever mess with that because that's who, who we are as a brand. Um, so I'm not necessarily worried about that. The, the main concern for me is, is, is scaling these solutions as quickly as possible. And that's probably the next five years. And, and the five years after that, it's going to be ensuring that, um, you know, there is a team in place uh, to take these ideas forward because we're not, you know, Elvis and I don't have children. We're not building this to be a family business. We're building this to be a, a, a solution-focused design practice, and we think that we can can teach and train a whole generation of designers to work this way. And that's what we're going to have to be looking at doing in the next ten years. So that's interesting, I and mean, that's that's going to going back to what you're saying about being a uh, a do leader rather than a um, a, a thought yeah. leader. You're going to push yourself in the direction of being a thought leader. <laughs> eventually whether you like it or not in, or, in order to have more impact at scale by by you know, positively influencing um, a, a new generation of designers yes i guess i guess that's right but as long as there's an, uh, an army of doers that's uh, <laughs> that's growing and growing and growing i'll i'll make peace with that <laughs> chris it's been an absolute delight talking to you thanks so much for joining us no thanks for the interview really enjoyed it too i'm your host tony cook and I'm on a mission to provide inspiration and insight for people changing their world. So check out changehackers.org to read show notes, guest blogs, and subscribe to access bonus content. Remember, 
This show's for you and change hackers like you. So drop me a line, tell me what you love, what you hate, or ideas you have for improving the show. And let me know if you know someone who'd make a great guest on this show. Maybe a friend, someone you work with, maybe even you. Just use the contact form at changehackers.org. I'd love to hear from you. Till next time, change hackers.